just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. Who are Kenyatta and Jack? We're just friends who are Gen Xers, former Air Force brats, parents, taxpayers, and citizens of the Earth. And we're here to save it one podcast at a time. A wop, bop, a loop, bop, a wop, bam, boom. It's us. We are back. Did you miss us, listening friends? I bet you did. Never fear. We are here once again, tasked as we have ever been tasked because we tasked ourselves with saving the world. That gentleman over there is Jack. This lady here is Kenyatta. Thanks for coming back. Jack, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Just incredible. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate everybody that does come back every week and listen. Mm -hmm, We sure do. We We definitely do. Surely do. So. So, yeah, we're, uh, you know, life is great. Had some, Mm -hmm. before the pandemic would have been snow days this week for me, but they were work from home week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really the worst part of the COVID, not the millions of people that have died from it. It's the loss of snow days. Good Lord. Okay. (laughs) That was a bad joke. Obviously. (laughs) I don't mean it. We know, we know it's, 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 it's you. We know, we know, Yeah, but it is, but it is a close second. Fair. <laughs> Listening friends. We are not those people. Stop no. playing. Stop playing. You don't have to put us on pause and go to something else. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, but oh, it is a side boy. effect of that. So, yeah. Oh, well. At least I didn't have to get out and drive in the crappy weather because it's not my driving in crappy weather that I'm worried about. It's everybody else's. Yeah, same, same. I don't understand what it is about precipitation that all of a sudden everybody's common sense drops by like 15 points or something. I don't know. Right. And, and you know, people, if the road is icy, you need to start slowing down before you snow down when it's slow down when it's not icy. Because you need more time. I don't think people in this state know that. I don't think a lot of people know that. I remember it was some years ago. And we had a, a nice little snowstorm that came in that hit, you know, hit and stuck and iced up the roads. I'm on my way home, you know, keeping my distance, going slow, chugga, chugga, chug. I didn't want to get on the highway. I was taking the streets. Mm-hmm. Two cars up for me. The car spins and then goes sideways right there in the middle of the road. The car directly behind them swerves to try not to hit them. Then they they kitty corner the other way. Mm-hmm. Then this car goes the other way. And then I'm behind this car and I'm like, oh, crap. And I go the other way. And I ended up, I didn't hit nobody, but I did pull off to the side of the road. And right there, it was a RV sales and rental business. And they had a big iron gate around their uh, parking lot. Mm-hmm. And when I came off the road, I hit the gate boop, and popped the gate open. Oh, Everybody man. else, including the three or four cars in front of me and like three cars behind me, hit somebody. I was the only person that didn't hit another car. I said, oh, my gosh. Nobody got hurt. Right. Nobody got hurt. But the cops showed up and was like, OK, everybody that was involved in this, come over here and talk. 
And then he was like, he, he went, you know, one by one. And he's like, did you hit somebody else? I said, no, sir, I did not. He said, you can go. I said, bye. Good luck. See ya. <laughs> How was it? I think like three years ago, I, we got sent home because there was a snowstorm coming on and I'm at a light and I hear the sound of, you know, and I'm like, ah, shit. We're about to get hit. So I started just letting the car roll off to my right, hoping that I could avoid it. This lady went, hit the truck in front of her. And because it was a truck, she bounced backwards and then hit my car. So then we sort of get off the road because now it's, you know, a three car pileup. And this poor lady, she was just, she was so upset. She was like 80. And she's like, I've never had a car wreck in my entire life. And I'm so, so sorry to have hit your car. And I'm just like, ma'am, it's okay. It happens when it's, <laughs> you know, when it's snowing and stuff like that happens yeah and you know it, it's all right insurance will take care of all of this we will get it worked out <laughs> yeah nobody's hurt that's that's the point so. you're fine i'm fine he's fine cars are much easier to fix than people indeed indeed but it's just it's just something about precipitation people lose their minds like they yep. think the quicker they get out of it the less risk there is of them getting hurt well no that's the opposite Mm -hmm. really but you can't tell folks anything so nope 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 you definitely can't definitely can't listening so, friends wherever you are be careful out there in that weather you know how it goes mm -hmm. yep yep well are you ready to uh to wtf our uh our listeners indeed indeed i believe so, it is your go it is i have a WTF that I literally just read um, a couple hours ago that really is disturbing. Uh, this is the reporting from CNN, the headline, law barring people with domestic violence restraining orders from having guns is unconstitutional. Court rules. Eh? Yeah. Eh? So, Yeah. Uh, a federal law that prohibits people, people subject to domestic violence restraining orders from possessing firearms is unconstitutional. A, this will be a shocker, conservative-leaning appeals court ruled on Thursday. I have a feeling this is going to move up. You know, it's going to keep going, probably end up at the Supreme Court. Um, but the ruling is the latest significant decision dismantling a gun restriction in the wake of the Supreme Court's expansion of Second Amendment rights last year in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin decision. It's the Fifth Circuit, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and it said that the federal law targeting those believed to pose a domestic violence threat could not stand under the Bruin test, which requires that gun laws have a historical analogy to the firearm regulations in place at the time of the Constitution's framing. Eh? Yeah. And the court's <laughs> opinion was written by Judge Corey Todd Wilson, who was appointed by da -da 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 -da, Donald Trump. Indeed. He was joined by Reagan appointee Judge Edith Jones and Judge James Ho, which is another Trump appointee. The Fifth Circuit Court panel was not persuaded by the historical parallels put forth by the Justice Department. So they just basically said, let's have a bunch of people murdered. You know? Um. And I would say out of that, 
um, you know, there is domestic violence that is, you know, lady on dude, but for the most part, it's probably 90, 95%, you know, dudes on dude on the lady violence. So this is sort of, uh, sort of scary. Well, not sort of scary. It is it scary. Is. It is scary. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh boy. I, mm. I don't, I don't, I don't know what these people want from us. We are ordinary citizens for heaven's sake. And we, we vote and we elect people and we put them in office and, and, and then they appoint people in office and so on and so forth and blah, 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 blah. And then your whole faith, the foundation of your faith is shaken when the quote people in charge make decisions like this. You're like, do you not care about us? What do you want us to do? Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry if you've been, especially if you've been, you know, charged with domestic violence, I don't think you should own a gun. I also don't think you probably should own a knife sharper than a butter knife or a baseball bat or a crowbar. I mean, and, and the unfortunate fact is, is that when you're talking about the most violent domestic abuse situations, if somebody wants to do something to somebody, they're going to find a way. But yes. you, you don't have to make it so easy to find one of the most violent weapons out there. Are you kidding me? Yeah. At, at least make it challenging for the person. And the whole idea about having gun laws, I thought in the first place, no, you're not going to be able to eliminate them completely from the landscape of this great country. Cause that's, that's the whole foundation. Yeah. Gun, guns and ammo. But at the very least, you should have uh, you should have more than a few hoops that people need to jump through. Right? I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> there are just certain people that I think maybe we should keep weapons away from. And if you, you know, proven that you're violent. But, yeah. you know, I'm, I guess I'm just a snowflake like that. We're just overly sensitive. Things like that don't happen. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's not, you know, entire networks dedicated to people with violent tendencies <laughs> you know doing things to other folks you know there's not discovery id an entire network based upon that but you know snapped yeah that right there so yeah th no there's no problem there whatsoever yeah yeah Any, anybody who who makes a big deal out of it is just over exaggerating that's all yeah, it, it's mm. just us. I mean, somebody's God-given right to own a gun is obviously more important than, you know, somebody's right to live. Yeah. But then again, they only care about life when it's in the womb. Oh, boy. Yeah. But that's, that's a podcast for a different day. Indeed. One that we've actually already talked about. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it can always be revisited because that particular topic changes talking points on regular. So mm, stay tuned. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I just saw that and just like, oh, my. Oh, my God. Mm. This is just nuts. Mm. Nuts, boy, I say. America. Yeah. It's. Fun times, fun times. Indeed. But yeah, other than that, disgusting ruling, because we know that it's never going to, just the way Congress is right now, there's no way that 
Congress could pass a law or something like that, you know, to make that happen, you know, barring people from doing that because it wouldn't make it out of the house, but still anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, oh boy. That is so, it. so yeah. Would you like to, uh, I guess it's your turn to WTF our listeners. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Meanwhile, down in Florida, Ron DeSanctified got his way again and managed to have the college board um, AP requirements stripped down because what AP, of course, is advanced placement. Those are those extra credit classes for high schoolers to help them get college credits and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So the college board had come out with a nice curriculum curriculum that included um, studies into African-American history, LGBTQ history, things of that nature. To sanctify was like, nah, that's indoctrination. We won't have it. What? Yeah. So the college board came back and keep in mind, the only reason that I found after reading up several places about this, the college board came back and stripped down his curriculum to take out all of these things that they had just suggested that, you know, young people need to learn about because it is a fuller, rounder, more realistic picture of this country. Mm. But because of pressure, they said, nah, we're, we're pulling back on this. So yep. they managed to drop the names of several black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory. Again, which is not something that's taught in grade school. Let me make it clear. Listening friends, if you've been with us, I know you guys know, but I'm saying it anyway. They managed to scrub those writers. Information, like I said, um, about the LGBTQ experience and black feminism. Yeah. And yeah. no black lives matter. And apparently they added something new as an idea for research project, black conservatism. Well, I mean, right. I mean, that is a thing. You it know, is. There are some black conservatives, bless them. Um, I think the only reason they, they suggested that as a research project was in their efforts to show what was it? It was said both sides of a subject of a topic, you know, just black conservatives. And once again, that, that, get a, dem a different demonstration of, well, if Black people say it, it can't be racist. Right. So this is another version of that. And the College Board announced this AP course last year in August of 2022. And again, that was something that was a long time coming. And they, they, were, they were trying it out in a handful of, of high schools across the country, like a, like a mere fraction. But you know, to sanctify was like, no, that's indoctrination. I quote, he said indoctrination. Right. So I'm coming. I'm, I, I, we talked about this before on previous episodes. I'm coming back to it. This is not that. It's, it's not indoctrination. And, and truly, even the history that most of us have learned throughout our grade school days was not necessarily indoctrination. It was just a quote unquote whitewashed version of it. If you want to teach the children and send them out into the world as responsible citizens, you need to give them all the information they need, not just the stuff you want them to have. And this is an instance again, where 
the sanctified and conservatives just like him, they can't stand the idea that them and their people be, be made to feel guilty about anything. Because that's what it comes down to. They just don't want to feel bad about it. No one's telling you to feel bad. We're telling you, teach the kids. Okay? You're not protecting the kids. Again, this is not about right. the kids. This is about you guys. But, okay. Okay. So. Yeah. You know, I I understand that confronting shittiness that, lack of a better term, your people did to another group of people in the past. It's not necessarily easy to uh, have to learn about or confront, mm -hmm. but you have to do it so it never happens again. You know, in Germany, they do not shy away from teaching about Hitler. Yes. Yes. And this is this, the same thing. You, you know why Jim Crow laws are getting passed in 2020s? Because people don't want to confront the Jim Crow laws that were passed in the past. That's a lot of P words. Uh, but <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. English guys. In the past. But, English um, guys. Yeah. But, you know, I get that while you are discovering, you know, things that happen, that it can be uncomfortable. But being uncomfortable isn't bad, necessarily. That's that's how you know something's you know something's not right. That's how you can fix the thing that's not right because you were made uncomfortable and you realized something wasn't right. Hmm. And I it's just it's infuriating. It is. It is because those are the types of things. And I and I should I should clarify as I go through the article. This is an article out of the New York Times recently. Um, the College Board. In their curriculum, they still have uh, topics or talking points about slavery, reconstruction, civil rights movement, things of that nature. And then, of course, redlining, discrimination, which is just nothing but an offshoot of slavery. Mm -hmm. Google yeah. it, your friend. And interestingly enough, they include Afrofuturism. I find that surprising. Hmm. I kind of like that. But again, they chose to drop the more, I guess, hot button topics, you know, Black Lives Matter, reparations, things like that. Those are optional now, not required learning. I'm, I don't know. I, I mean, we have to learn about the Ku Klux Klan, don't we? Don't they love talking about that in history class? They love that. Well, I don't know if they like talking about it in history class, but they sure like talking about it in other places to recruit, apparently. Indeed. I mean, have you seen what they've been bringing in? I wouldn't be so proud anymore. That's just me. But <laughs> I said, this is just the latest in another effort to, what's the word? Shut down alternate, alternate histories. It's still factual history. It's just an alternate version of it. We can, we can include those things that happen to African-Americans into the narrative of American history quite seamlessly. I don't know how you can't. I don't know how you can talk about how this country got made and built up and put together without mentioning African-Americans. And then to a certain extent, um, Asian-Americans, the Chinese, and then, you know, Mexicans, other ethnic groups and other races that came over and, you know, tried to put their stamp into this great country and build some things. So mm -hmm. everybody was in on it. But the way it's mostly been told, it's always been this really long list 
of old white guys. And they want to, what do you want? You believe that no one else was responsible for this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, back in the 1800s, you know, whenever they show like movies or whatever, of people building the first transcontinental railroad, they always show, you know, a bunch of like white cowboy guys doing it. That was, that was something like 80% Chinese people that were building the railroads. Mm-hmm. And then it was something like 12% uh, blacks. And then the remainder were white and they were usually obviously positions of authority. And then uh, white people afterwards were so afraid that Chinese people were going to start immigrating to the U S that's when our first immigration laws were passed. It was to prevent Chinese people from coming to the U S when you think about the number of laws, both on let's say the federal and the state level that were created to stop somebody else from doing something. Not, not, not that, and it wasn't even the stuff that these other people were doing was wrong. They just wanted to stop you from having any kind of decent life or opportunities. You think about Mm -hmm. how many laws are in place that just stop people from thriving and flourishing. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I know the whole, The whole replacement theory, that's been going on since Chinese people were brought in to build the railroads when they Mm -hmm. were done. That's when great replacement theory started. They're going to replace us. Mm -hmm. You know what? They haven't done it since the 1870s. I doubt that or 60s, whenever that time was. It's not going to happen now. Yeah, I I think y'all are safe. Because you know what will happen? Brazil is a good example of this. In Brazil, they have the mixture scientifically speaking it would be called the admixture of dna Mm -hmm. because in brazil the people that are the modern day sort of people in brazil are pretty much genetically speaking a combination of the native brazilians black people from africa white people and they've all you know all come together and they've almost create you know that's that's what people in brazil look like and Mm -hmm. That's just what will happen here. We'll still be Americans. Mm-hmm. We'll just be a nice, you know, blended, blended group of people that who cares? <laughs> anyway, you'll be dead anyway. So what the frick does it matter? <laughs> Why do you care what the racial makeup of America is in a hundred years from now? You're not going to be alive. Yeah. Well, for all we know, in a hundred years, the U.S. will just be made up of robots. You know, the whole landscape of this part of North America will be nothing but bomb craters, hundreds of miles wide. Do you know why? Because we put ourselves over. That's why. Right. Take it from me. It's going to happen. Get ready. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, sorry. And- I'm, not, I'm not trying to wish it. I'm, actually, I want the zombie apocalypse. I'm sorry. I want the zombie apocalypse instead. <laughs> and one thing that's never considered because people don't have a little thing called, I don't know, foresight, whatever. You know that Yellowstone is, in fact, a giant freaking volcano, right? No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? So Uh if Yellowstone uh were to erupt, it would literally shoot ash into Texas, Arkansas, Canada, you know, up through California. And I'm not talking a couple of, you know, an inch or two of ash. It could be several feet. This is how big this volcano is, right? So if, say that were to erupt, is the U.S. inhabitable anymore? Questions. 
So what, what, what are the people that are outside of the volcano range, say South Carolina or whatever, because that will still have a massive impact on our ecology. Of course. And climate, right? Uh-huh. People are going to need to leave. <laughs> it's going to look like the day after tomorrow, except everybody's going to the east instead of the south. <laughs> right. Well, there'll be, but there will be people that are, will be going down into Mexico. And in my opinion, if I were Mexico, I'd just line up the military and be like, you know what? No, fuck you. See, that's how that's how come you knew for certain that that movie was a incredible bit of fiction, that Mexico opened its borders for all us disgusting Americans with no problem whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll be like, y'all are just coming to replace us. <laughs> You know, we we don't need migrant workers getting the, the guava so we can make tequila. We already have people that do that, and we don't need you to take their jobs. Indeed. Indeed. Oh, privilege. Oh, yeah, I had major <laughs> problems with The Day After Tomorrow, though. That movie drove me insane because they're it's getting so cold, and I'm like, you're in a freaking library. It's full of lots of flammable shit called books. Am I for the burning of books? Absolutely not. But if it's be warm or die, burn the damn book. Oh, right? you're, talking about, you're talking about the librarian that got upset. <laughs> now they're in the library and yeah. like they're burning the furniture. And I'm like, don't burn the couch. There's thousands of books. Maybe start with the piss poor ones, you know, don't start with the classics, <laughs> you know, but poor anyway. librarian was like, oh, what are you doing? Uh, we're trying to keep warm here. Okay. Don't want to die. Sorry. Got to be warm. Oh boy! Anyway, that's a that's a podcast for a different day. Indeed. <laughs> oh boy! So, mo moving right along. Yep, yep. Let's we've WTF'd enough. Oh boy! So, listening friends, um, you'll be listening to this episode on if you're listening to it when it first drops. You'll be listening to it on the first Tuesday of February, and if you know here in the states. February is Black History Month. So we did a little something last year uh, during Black History Month where we each profiled and discussed a lesser known African-American figure that contributed to significantly to the culture. And we'll be doing the same thing this month. So in addition to our, we'll be having four episodes this month. In addition to our Tuesday episodes, if you're following us on our social medias, we'll also be having little blurb posts about uh, some other African-American figures. So follow along, learn something new. We promise we'll be as, as uh, what's the word, as original as possible as, as far as the people we were able to look up. Okay, We want to share the knowledge, share the wealth. So today is going to be our first full episode profile and i'm going to be talking about author anthropologist and filmmaker zora neil hurston cool so this is great i've never heard of this person so i am excited to learn okay very good listening friends i hope you guys are too because she is something else so she was born january 7th 1891 the fifth of eight children born to John and Lucianne Hurston in Notsalaga, 
I'm saying it wrong. Not a Suga. I can't say it. Not a Suga, Alabama. It's a little town in Alabama. That's that's all I can tell you. I apologize. <laughs> all four of her grandparents on her, both her mother and father's sides, were born into slavery. Slavery. That lets you know how close, how how we're not that far removed from it before you say anything. But um, her father was a Baptist preacher and sharecropper. Her mother was a school teacher. In 1894, at the age of three, her and her family moved to Eatonville, Florida, one of the first all-Black municipalities in the United States. And as of the 2020 census, the population there, and it still exists, the population there is just over 2,300. And the Eatonville Historic District was designated and added to the National Register of Historic Places on February 3rd, 1998. Cool. So Eatonville would be the setting for many of her works, both novels and uh, short stories. Her mother passed away in 1904 when she was 13 years old. Her father remarried and sent her to a Baptist boarding school, apparently because her and her stepmother did not get along. But eventually they stopped paying her tuition and she had to leave the school. She ended up in Baltimore, Maryland with a brother where she finished school at Morgan Academy in 1918. She then joined the Gilbert and Sullivan Traveling Theatrical Company and eventually ended up in New York. She <laughs> continued her education, picking up in 1921 at Howard University, listening friends that is indeed an HBCU, Historically Black College and University. Uh, from 1921 to 24, she attended there. And then in 1925, she won a scholarship to Barnard College, where she studied anthropology, and she was the only Black student. She graduated from Barnard in 1928 and did two years of graduate study at Columbia University. So Ms. Hurston was considered to be part of the Harlem Renaissance. And listening friends, I don't know if you're familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, but it was a period of time that lasted almost two decades uh, throughout the late teens and into the 20s of the 1900s. And it was a period of time that cut, that was a cultural search for Black Americans. Right. And it covered literature, art, music, and theater. And this particular period and the figures, you know, that work within authors and, and singers, things of that nature, they helped to redefine and reshape the idea of what it meant to be black apart from white people. Right. Think about, it, think can, about I, it. can I interject something real quick? The sure. Harlem Renaissance, even though it um, wasn't necessarily like a major, major focus, mm -hmm. but in the Marvel Netflix series, Luke Cage, mm -hmm. it's integral to the background of that whole story mm. is the, uh, the Harlem Renaissance, because it, while not necessarily specifically stated, a lot of the subplots that go on, the Harlem Renaissance sort of mm -hmm. leads to what's going on. Hmm. I've never seen is, that. I need to put that on the list. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I just found that interesting as I was watching it, that that was something that the writers included you I, know, I, in that. I like when I like when they 
when writers are cognizant enough to be able to tie in real life events and eras and time periods and have it, you know, feasibly worked into a fictional story. I like when that happens. Yeah. And also only related in that this movie takes place in that time scene or time frame is the Eddie Murphy film, Harlem Nights, Mm -hmm. because it has one of my all time favorite scenes in any movie, the pinky toe shooting scene. I know we're being serious. You shut off my pinky toe. (laughs) I told you I was going to do it. (laughs) Della Reese deserved all the flowers for that role in that movie. She worked that out. I absolutely loved her in that movie. I Um, I mean, I I loved everybody, but she was especially a scene stealer. I absolutely love her. Yeah. If if you've never seen that, I'm sure I'm sure it's on Google. Just Google Harlem Nights. You shot my pinky toe. And that whole scene is. I, I just can't describe it. <laughs> priceless. It's priceless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one of those Harlem Nights, you know, in the culture is one of yeah. those those great black cinematic experiences. But that particular scene, that whole movie is quotable, but that scene right there. Yeah, yeah. It had a great cast too. Oh yeah. Just excellent cast. Yeah, absolutely. So but- Listening friends, put that on the list. So yeah. Anyway, back to it. I, <laughs> I I just needed to say those those things and throw in a little bit of pop culture. That's fine. You know, we always have to have a sprinkle, so it's fine. It's fine. Other notable figures during this era were Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, County Cullen, Alice Dunbar Nelson, and Helene Johnson, among others. And while the focal area for uh where most of these people would gather and um, do their work, I guess you say, was in Harlem, New York. But it also extended to Paris, France, where a lot of African-American creatives ended up during this time period. So so Ms. Hurston took many trips down south into the Caribbean to conduct field studies in folklore. That was her focus. She wanted to collect information about the culture, the music, the food of people in the South and the Caribbean, because those at the time were the closest things that were still left to whatever was brought over from Africa. Right. So she would go there numerous occasions in those areas and collect information on folklore. And as often was the case with um, the Black creatives involved in the Renaissance, a lot of times they had sponsors which were usually older, maybe not necessarily older, but wealthy white people who mm-hmm. um, had an interest in all these things that black people were doing. Now, um, it's not to say there wasn't some difficulty with that because some of these, uh, some of these sponsors had certain demands, certain things they wanted done their way because they were funding things. Right. So in her case, um, because these trips were funded by her sponsor, she was kind of restricted in what she could do with the information she gathered. She had to turn over all information that she had to Miss Mason anytime she asked for it. And she couldn't publish anything without getting approval. So Mm. while, you know, she was insistent on wanting to document you know, the lives of, of these black people, she was kind of restricted on what she could and couldn't do with it. So 
that it, it comes up, you know, it'll come up again later on as I go further into her story, why that was an issue, not, not just with her, but with other, like I said, other creators that were uh, involved in this particular period, because Charlotte Mason was also the sponsor of Langston Hughes, the writer. Um, Ms. Hurston did collaborate with Langston Hughes in 1930 on a play called Mule Bone, a comedy of Negro life in three acts. Um, it wasn't ever put on while they were alive, but it was put on in 1991. However, because the two of them disagreed over writing credits, that collaboration ended their friendship. And that's a shame because we're talking about two of the most gifted writers of the era, in, in my opinion. And that's right. a shame. That's a shame to have not for them to have only, you know, come out with one with one piece. That's right. I, I that, would have loved that just shows you humanity is the same. Oh, because yeah. Because that stuff happens all the time, you know, today. Yeah. I'm not getting my, my dues and people get mm -hmm. mad at each other and they're no longer like each other. Yep. Um, some things so, never change. Oh, no. Yeah. That's just the human in us. It's ooh, ego. Um, so when Miss Hurston would take her trips down south into different parts of the Caribbean, like I said, she would get this information on local stories, the languages, superstitions, music, religion things of that nature. And her goal was to preserve and promote the culture of rural black people. Because again, per the history of the transatlantic slave trade, most black people, most Africans were brought in along the Southern coast of the country. So that's where a lot of black people remain. Even, even this was, uh, this was the time um, of the first great migration where a lot of African-Americans were moving from the South up North to um, take advantage of industrialized jobs. But there were still a lot of people down South. And there's, there's such a wealth of, of information they still had that, that were brought over by their ancestors when they were taken from Africa. So that's what she wanted to preserve. And because of that, she opposed integration, fearing hmm. that it would rob Black Americans of, of their, their history of their cultural traditions and i can see i can see that yeah and she, she was actually known as a conservative at the time she was called a conservative it, based on your wtf she was 100 right well not you know what i mean <laughs> no i know <laughs> that I know. it would disappear yeah yeah um but current scholars would describe her more uh as a libertarian nowadays right. but she wrote her first novel Jonas Gordvine in 1934, which was well received by critics. And the following year, she wrote Mules and Men. And her best known work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, was written in 1937. Two more novels followed in 1938 and 1939 Tell My Horse and Moses, Man in the Mountain, respectively. And in 1942, she wrote her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road. So because she, like I said, at the time, she identified as a Republican and she did not care, in addition to not being in favor of integration, she also did not care to be associated with the civil rights movement because that was hmm. kind of their tent pole. So it kind of makes sense. Um, she was adamantly against Jim Crow laws. She wanted to see those dissolved. But at the same time, she didn't she didn't agree, obviously, with the ideals of the civil rights movement, because the idea of that was for all of us in this country to live in harmony and for black people to be treated fairly and equitably. And 
in her case, she felt like black people would come to depend too much on things that integration allowed them. And as a matter of fact, she was against the new deal that was passed years before back in 1933 after the, uh, as a, a way to, right all the mess of the great depression and she was against that because like i said she felt that it caused black people to become dependent on the government and in becoming dependent on the government they would lose their collective power and the trick and the thing of it is as i was reading i've i've always i've always been interested in her for years but um as i was doing my research this was new stuff that i was finding and i'm thinking to myself huh there's something to that not to say that it would not to say that I think that it is an issue now. I don't think that black people or indeed any people of color have become necessarily due to, too dependent because that can happen across the board regardless of race, I think. That people right. become, you know, become too dependent on someone else showing them up and they don't flex their power. They're not independent enough. I can see that happening across the board, but in her case, she felt like and she felt like Black folks need to work their way up, so to speak, I guess you could say, because that's that's much of what she did. She didn't lean on anybody. She didn't look to anybody. And it's, it's, it's an interesting bit of irony because she felt like independence was necessary, but then she depended on someone to fund her travels. So there's right. that. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like she had the hand up, not a handout mm-hmm. type of. Uh, philosophy yeah yeah so her trips down south usually consisted of going to georgia and florida and most of her travel in that area took place between 1927 and 1931 in 1934 she established a school of dramatic arts at college now bethune cookman university also hbcu in daytona beach florida and years later, she served on the faculty of North Carolina College for Negroes, now known as South North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina. Mm. Between 1937 and 38, she received two Guggenheim fellowships and traveled to Jamaica, Haiti, and Bermuda, again, for her anthropological. Ooh, I murdered that word. <laughs> her research. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In 1941, she became a staff writer at Paramount Studios in Hollywood and then spent the next three years between 1942 and 45 back in Daytona Beach. And in 1946, made several trips to Honduras, again, for research. By 1950, she occasionally worked as a freelance writer, but often had to take various jobs to make ends meet, including as a maid, and a librarian at Patrick Air Force Base in Florida. In that position, she was fired for being, quote, too well educated. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. By 1958, she was writing again for the Fort Pierce, Florida Chronicle and teaching part-time at Lincoln Park Academy, also in Fort Pierce. However, a string of financial and medical issues forced Ms. Hurston into St. Lucie County Welfare Home, where she had suffered a stroke in 1959. During her time there, she wrote a letter 
to the publishing company Harper and Brothers to see if they'd be interested in a book that she was working on about the life of Herod the Great. Unfortunately, she did not get to see that through. And she passed away on January 28, 1960. And unfortunately, even with the critics loving a good deal of her previous work, she died broke. There wasn't mm-hmm. a, she there wasn't enough money to bury her properly. And so a collection was taken up and she was buried at the Garden of Heavenly Rest in Fort Pierce, Florida, where her grave remained unmarked until 1973, when author Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple, mm-hmm. and her friend Charlotte Hunt found the approximate area where her grave was and noted it as being her final resting place. Ms. Walker commissioned a gravestone marker which said Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist, 1901 to 1960. And Ms. Walker writes about finding Ms. Hurston's grave in a 1975 article for Ms. Magazine called In Search of Zora Neale Hurston, and it was later renamed Looking for Zora. And it it was because of this article that People that didn't know who Miss who Zora Neale Hurston was, all of a sudden interest in her flourished again after that particular article. Right, and it's, right. it's a really good article. That's I found that on um online. The actual taken straight from the Ms. Magazine. It's a very good article. So yeah, yeah. Um, a nineteen. 19- I was gonna say she had an amazing, uh, an amazing sort of like life and, and mm-hmm. like in any time frame just all of the things that she did is pretty incredible for, you know, in any time mm-hmm. frame of really, you know, any type of person it is, it, it's an incredible story. It is. <laughs> it, it is. It's sad that she, you know, died broke. Yeah. And it wasn't unfortunately uncommon with a lot of black creators during that time period. Oh so. yeah. In uh, 1994, she was inducted into the national women's hall of fame. In 2010, she was inducted as a member of the inaugural class of the New York Writers Hall of Fame. In 2001, a collection of folk tales in a manuscript called Every Tongue Got to Confess was published after being discovered in the Smithsonian archives. Oh, a, wow. novel, a novel called Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo about the life of Cujo Lewis the at the time presumed last slave brought to America was finally published in 2018 based on her interviews with Mr. Lewis back from 1927. Oh, wow. And this, I just found out and it is on my list to watch when I have some free time. There is a relatively new documentary film called Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space which first aired on the American Experience series on PBS on January 17th this year, just a few weeks ago. Put it on your list, guys. Watch it. What was the name of uh, the book uh, you said where she interviewed the the dude that was believed to be the last slave that came over? Barracoon, B-A-R-R-A-C-O-O-N. I will be uh, looking that up on Kindle. Yes, that is on my list as well. And he, like I said, at the time that she interviewed him, there was a series of interviews that she did with him back in 27. And he was presumed to be the last, the last slave brought over. But in the, in, since that time, they've discovered there were two other 
two other women that mm-hmm. were also brought over at the same time. But I mean, to me, that doesn't diminish the remarkableness of her being able to speak to that man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and not, sure. not to go off subject, I did look up a little bit about him, you know, because it was related. And he was kidnapped from his village. And forgive me, I don't remember. It was it was West Africa, but I'm not sure exactly what country or what area. He was maybe four or five. Mm-hmm. Very young child when he was kidnapped and brought over. So by the time, you know, she interviewed him, he was a he was a pretty old man. And I find yeah, that yeah. amazing. Like he is, he, yeah. was a, he was a living, walking historical marker, so to speak. And I don't mean to disrespect him, but that's, that's amazing to me. Yeah, to no, me. I, I agree hundred yeah, percent that she had the opportunity. So yeah, that book is definitely on my list, but for me, I know I had to be in a certain mindset to be able to read that because right. <laughs> stuff, the stuff like that, I'll be throwing the book across the room or some such. I don't want to do that. So. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. I, I definitely get that. Um, do you know if, there is anywhere that you can find all of the research that she did as she was going down to the South and documenting stuff. Cause I know that there are the few books, but is there anywhere where you can find her research? From my, from my research about, uh, about her, when I was putting my notes together, she had a request when she was in a nursing home that upon her death, that she wanted all her papers to be burned. And indeed, you oh, know, wow. some, well, someone started to, you know, they built a fire and they started, you know, to throw her stuff in there. Someone else came along and saw what was going on and managed to save a good deal of it. Unfortunately, though, I wasn't able to find the information as to where the rest of it might be, if it's been collected somewhere. Because I know in addition to the, the books that I mentioned here, the novels, she does have... Um, several uh, collections of sort stories. Right. But I don't know specifically if there's any way that they managed to save uh, her notes her research notes or anything like that. That would be amazing. If, if it ever gets found yeah. or, you know, it needs to be donated to Howard. Oh yeah. Most definitely. In my Most opinion, definitely. or at least one of the other schools that, that she did attend, but yeah. I think Howard probably, out of all the ones you mentioned, is probably the most notable now and probably would have uh, more money to be able to properly take care of it and preserve it, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And I can see that. But and really, you mentioning that, it kind of puts it in my head that I really want to dig around and see what else I can find. Um, But I have read I have read Their Eyes Were Watching God. And a couple of her short story collections. I'm going to put a pin in in some of these and come back at a later time. Like her autobiography, I didn't want to read that. But yeah, I agree with you. She's, she had a very remarkable life. And, and it, it's close to my heart because she's a creative. So I love stories right. about, about Black creatives. But it, 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 makes me, it makes me a little sad to know that, um, you know, she died unrecognized right it it wasn't it wasn't until years after her death that she was more fully appreciated for for her works and at the time that she was writing because she used so much of her imp her her research information especially about 
the dialects and the spoken speech of the people that she came across down south and in the Caribbean, a lot of criticism that was geared towards her at, at the time that she was writing was about her writing style. Mm-hmm. Right. She would actually write in dialect. Right. So like for me, when I first read her stuff, it took me a second to get used to how she was writing. Like for instance, I, you know, I did this, or I did that. She would actually spell out how it would sound a H Mm-hmm. when she wrote it. So she would write in dialect like that pretty much the same way she heard it being spoken by the people down South that she came across. And that was one of the criticism that was leveled at her by a lot of other black writers at the time, because they, they felt like it was common and that it was, it was reductive to black people. And they felt like also that she didn't pay enough attention to racism. And, right. Um, things that involve race. And she was, she said she wasn't interested in that. She was more interested in being able to tell stories about black people existing basically. Right. She Uh, was, I think, documenting the factual like circumstance that people were in. And by, by writing it in the way that it was spoken, you know, it kind of preserves something that's probably, you know, lost at this point. And strangely enough, almost 100 years later, that's probably very valuable that she did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I understand why she made that choice, because I think she was doing it. This is the practical way. You know, this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't want to. Um, I don't I don't know what proper <laughs> English it up, because this is the. It's she important to have a record of how it was spoken and everything like that. So, it, yeah, it was important to her to have the 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 authenticity of it. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. <laughs> but like in her in her short stories, um, short story collections that I've read, she has some. Um, she would include like funny little stories, or she would have two of the people, you know telling jokes during the course of the story and be some funny stuff. And that was part of the things that were carried over from the countries out of Africa was a lot of those um, superstitions and those stories, especially about um, um, animals and the way that people were related to animals, things of that nature. So you, you, a lot of that weaves its way into her stories. Mm-hmm. So you can you can definitely tell not only did she take her research seriously, but she was able to bring it into her fictional stories and make it very real to the reader. But like I said, at the time, a lot of people had trouble suspending their disbelief when reading it. Now, you know, when I'm reading it, it's hard for me to imagine that people had an issue with it. But things being what they were back then. Right. Oh boy. But yes. Yes, if you you, if, you have if, the advantage of hindsight. Yes, that is true. So, listening friends, if you're ever interested in reading something a little bit different, or maybe a lot different, um, pick up one of her short story collections. That's a good place to start. And like I said, it takes them getting used to reading her writing, but once you catch, once you realize how it's written out. It, it flows just like any other book. And I'm not trying to say that to be disrespectful in any way whatsoever. It's just tricky getting into it when you first read it. 
because when I first got into it, I, I had never read anything like that before. But right. once you understand what's being said and how these people are relating to each other, then you get into the you get immersed in it. Like you're laughing at the jokes that the people are telling each other. You're right. laughing at the stories. Like there's a story, a short story in one of them about a mule or something like that. That didn't something about the mule didn't want to they couldn't move the mule. He just stood in the field or something like that. It was a funny little story about just commonplace, everyday things like that. Nothing mm-hmm. extraordinary. It was just people living their lives, basically. So that's how she was. I, I want to say she was like a hero for the people, honestly. She wanted, yeah. to tell, she wanted to tell their stories and she wanted to keep it as authentic as possible. So Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for introducing me to Miss Zora. That's, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have learned of, learned of her. Yes. It's, she's uh, a, it's awesome. She's a she's a remarkable figure and one of the they said one of the quieter or lesser known figures out of the Harlem Renaissance because people usually talk about Langston Hughes first and foremost. Right. But um she was and there were more men involved in the Renaissance than there were women. That's just the way it turned out. But she was one of the ones that doesn't get mentioned as often as she should, I think. So I I agree with you. That's uh she has quite an impressive uh, story, mm-hmm. you know, life story. That's it's cool to learn about people like that. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, yeah, there it is, listening friends. Our episode, our first episode for this year's Black History Month. Um, we hope you enjoyed learning something new. Um, any last thoughts? Really, this story, this life story. Mm-hmm really in my opinion hammers home that we need more history of our fellow americans taught in schools not less mm-hmm. as you know i'm a huge history buff love history read all sorts of history books just absolutely love it. i was and i was so into it that in high school i was on the team that went and did academic contests for history which was going and taking history tests to get points forward so that your school could win. You did that? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Right. So, so when I say that it's not like I have a casual love of history, I really, really, really enjoyed it Mm -hmm. and have done, you know, read so much about it and to have never heard of this person. (laughs) It's kind of sad. What's the only thing that would have made it, Well, not the only thing, but what would have helped, you know, me, someone who loves history to have, Mm -hmm. to have known about this? Oh, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Teaching more of it in school. Yeah. And no, it's not something that gets taught uh, in grade school, not K through 12, not at all. And if you get it in college, it's usually a course dedicated specifically to African-American studies, either. Yeah. African-American studies or African-American writers or African-American writers of a certain era depending right. on what school you go to. So, yeah, it would have it, and it, you know, would have been one of those elective type things. It wouldn't have been a class that qualified for your major. It would have been an elective. So, right, right. You you mm-hmm. almost have to go out would have had to have gone out of your way to have been in a class to have learned of her. Mhm. You you would have. You would and I can't say for sure how I found out about her. Now that I think about it. I don't know. It may have been just digging around on the internet or reading some, I don't know, to be honest, I just don't know where I heard, from, but I'm glad I did. So I am too. I am too. And now I'm glad that I've heard of her. 
and I'm glad we were able to share it with our listening friends. So that's what we've got for you today. We'll be back next week with a profile on yet another notable African-American figure. And remember, Black history is American history. So don't go thinking otherwise just because it's February, okay? (laughs) Yes. You should want to learn stuff year round. Yes. Every day should be a learning day. But um, if there's nothing else, then I guess we can wrap up and uh, and bid you guys adieu. Join us again next week and keep an eye out for our social media posts. And as a side note, Jack's solo podcast, Musings of an ADD Mind, next month is doing a series on living with ADHD. Check it out. And by the way, if you're not already listening, shame on you. Get over there. Yes. On on that note. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Season two, I have had just some incredible guests that have had some incredible life experiences. And um, some are serious. Some are not as serious. But I think I have had just some great, great people with some great life stories that I think everybody could learn a thing or two just from. Just from listening. So I appreciate you uh, mentioning that, Kenyatta. Of course, of course. I'm I'm remiss because I haven't mentioned it enough. But listening friends, you're about to get an earful. So get ready. That being said, we love you all. And we'll see you next time. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, hit that like button, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is valuable, and we welcome it. If you would like to contact, connect with, or just want to see what we talk about between episodes, you can find us on Facebook under our podcast name, on Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W, our website, podpage.com slash kenyatta-jack-save-the-world, or email at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. If you would like to learn about and contribute to our chosen charities, you can do so at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org and Black Women's Health Initiative at bwhi.org. Kenyatta and Jack Save the World is a product of Hyper Focus Podcasts.